Okay. I've been doing more and more of the timer. I gotta scroll 15 pages. <laughs> there we go. I found it. I like hide the beginning of my notes, so I have to find it through the timer. Yeah. Let's see. Yep. There we go. All right. We're gonna start today with a little poetry by the great, right? That's what everybody calls him, the great Muhammad Ali, right? Cassius Clay, before he changed his name to Muhammad Ali. You guys ever seen this poem? Okay, so this guy really wrote a poem about himself called I'm the Greatest. So tell us how you really feel, right? This is, so his name was Cassius Clay before his Muhammad Ali, if you don't know anything about boxing, right? Or history. Uh, this is the legend of Cassius Clay, the most beautiful fighter in the world today. He talks a great deal and brags indeedy of, muscular, of a muscular punch that's incredibly speedy. The fistic world was dull and weary with a champ like Liston, Sonny Liston, things had to be dreary. Then someone with color, someone with dash, brought the fight fans a running with cash. The brash young boxer is something to see and the heavyweight championship is his destiny. That guy, that's the poem he wrote about himself. <coughs> that cracks me up, right? Part of the appeal or the, of the, if you, you know, the legend of Muhammad Ali was, I mean, here's the thing. He actually was the greatest, right? But the appeal was he was the greatest, and then he told everybody he was the greatest. He has some great quotes. You know, what is it? I float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Uh, he had the one about he's so fast when he walks into his hotel room, he turns the lights off, but he's in bed before the lights actually go off, you know, stuff like he was very, he, he was pretty great at this, right? Um, I remember once too, like speaking of greatness, seeing a poster, I don't remember where it was exactly, it was like one of those posters, I might have seen it on Reddit or something, in a high school classroom, um, and it said something like, you're the greatest at something, you just have to figure out what it is. It was like a a motivational poster. And I remember thinking, no, like this whole, the whole, you know, I grew up in the, the self-esteem movement, right? In elementary school and junior high, everything. Like you're the greatest. And I remember thinking, well, if everybody's the greatest, then nobody is. The word, right, somebody, I don't know, like we all, but we, the thing is we all have this desire within us, right? To be great. And those posters and this poem, this Muhammad Ali poem, right, they all sort of appeal to something deep down within us that wants to be the best. We want to compare ourselves to others and we want to be the best. But why? Who cares? What, why does it matter if we're great? Well, when you're great, usually you have some sort of a sense of control. Like if you're the greatest at something, people will follow you in whatever that something is. When you're great at something, you get admiration. People like you. Can I be honest? That was the only reason I played basketball in high school. I don't even like basketball, really. But you know what? I'm really good at it. And when I played and I was good at it, everybody would say, wow, John, you're really good at that. And I'd go, hey, that feels pretty good. Even though the thing that I was good at, I hated it. And then I would go to practice and I would be like, this sucks and I don't like doing this. But then people will tell me I'm great, so I guess I got to do it, right? And that was pretty much the only reason I played basketball. We like the admiration. And we're really good at comparing ourselves to others. Everywhere we go, we compare ourselves to people. And, every, you know, and a lot of things that we do, we're just, we, we do it all the time subconsciously, right? And, but here's the thing, too. We, we, we especially are good at it when we know we're going to come out on top. 
right? We really like comparing ourselves to people we know we're better than at whatever it is, right? So when I say I'm really good at basketball, what I mean is compared to the other high schoolers, I was really good at basketball. You know what I never did? I never compared myself to those NBA players because those guys are actually good at basketball, you know? And so we like to do that. We like to compare ourselves to people because we win. And there's this deep thing within us that's like, I need to be the best. It has to be centered around me. Now, recapping real quick where we've been in the book of Luke. We did sort of, uh, first we did a sermon a couple weeks ago on Passover, and we talked about the preparation of the Passover meal and how Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of Passover. Then last week we did the whole communion service where we talked about what's the point of communion. If you missed that one, that's a good one to go back and listen to and you find out why we do what we do every week after church. Um, and we, so the disciples and Jesus, they're at the Last Supper, right? They're sitting uh, on one side of the table and Leonardo da Vinci is on the other side painting them. And they're taking the elements, you know, the, of the Passover meal and Jesus is instituting communion, doing all this stuff. Now, the Passover meal, though, was kind of like Thanksgiving afternoon. I don't know if other people do Thanksgiving the same way my family does it, but you know, Thanksgiving is not like a uh, just lunch and then it's over, right? Thanksgiving's kind of like a whole thing, right? And we're there all afternoon, and um, my mom always takes, she makes butternut squash soup to start out with, and that's disgusting, and everybody eats that, and then I'm starving, and then it takes another three hours to get the rest of the food, you know, and it's like a whole thing, right? Passover was the same kind of thing. It was a whole, it was a whole production, And so they're there for a while, and a bunch of other stuff happens. Um, And in some of that other stuff that happens during this meal, this is what we're going to read today. The disciples, in the middle of this meal, they fall into this trap about, I want to be great. Now, before we jump into those verses, though, I just want to real quick read um, verses 21 through 23. Uh, Oh, wait, I only have two of those verses up here, but I'll read the third one, too. But behold, so this is at the dinner. The man... The hand of him who betrays me is with me at the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And then the verse I don't have up there. And when they began to question one another, which one it could be, uh, which one of them could it be who was going to do this? So these are kind of some in-between verses. We read these verses a little bit a few weeks ago, kind of out of place. But as we flow through Luke, I just want to mention them, right? So in the middle of this meal, Jesus tells the disciples, I'm going to be sacrificed. My body's going to be broken, all this stuff. And it's not going to be about you guys. It's about me and what I do. And you guys are so bad even that even one of you is going to betray me. Now you think Jesus telling the disciples, one of you guys is going to betray me, would make the disciples be kind of introspective and stop and think about who they are and who Jesus is. And just kind of, this is like a weighty, heavy, serious moment, but that's not at all what happens. Look at verse 24. And a dispute arose among them as to which of them would be regarded as the greatest. So here's what happens at this meal. Luke leaves something out. All three of the first three gospels, the synoptic gospels, they leave out a story. And John wrote his gospel like 30 or 40 years after these ones, these first three were finished around the same time. And while, and John was there. And in writing his gospel, he was like, oh, these three guys left out, I'm guessing he said, one of my favorite stories about Jesus. And so he put it in. And so John's gospel is the only one that has it. We're not going to read it, but I'm going to recap what happens. So they're there at the meal. 
And, okay, so you got to remember, these guys are all wearing sandals. They don't have a wall of chucks like some people, right? So they're all walking around in sandals. And if you've ever been, uh, the Bills must have scored again. If you've ever been camping, right, which is basically just sleeping on the floor, let's be real, uh, and you're outside and you're all dirty. You know that, like, we don't get dirty here, you know what I mean? We shower every day. We're all pretty clean, I think. But that feeling of just, like, covered in grime and dirt from hiking and camping. Now, imagine hiking with no shoes but, like, sandals and just how nasty your feet get. So they all come inside, and they're supposed to kind of wash up or somebody's supposed to wash up for them or whatever. Nobody really does it. And so Jesus, what he does is he takes off his clothes and gets down to his skivvies, you know, I think. So his clothes don't get all wet and everything. Puts a towel around his waist. And he gets down and he gets a bowl of water and he starts washing the disciples' feet. Nasty, disgusting, don't shower every day, walking around Jerusalem. So these guys too, remember, they're walking every day this week. They're walking from Jerusalem to Bethany and back. And, you know, that's like every day walking from here to the cow palace and then back and back and, you know, these guys were gross. And Jesus gets down on his knees and he washes the disciples' feet. And then he teaches them a lesson. And he, he goes into like the, you know, this is how the kingdom works. And we're going to talk about some of this in a minute. So then they, Peter argues with them a little, then it's all over, right? So then they have the meal and everything. And then after the meal, what do they do? They start fighting. <laughs> no, I'm going to be the greatest. No, I'm going to be the greatest. No, I'm going to be the greatest. And this really is like deja vu because we already read this part. We did a whole sermon on this already. An argument, or this is from chapter 9. An argument arose among them. That's literally exactly what he says in, well, he says a dispute in chapter 22. As to which one of them would be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, he took a child, put him by his side, and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you is the one who is great. And we are, so we already did this sermon. We talked about it. I bet that this was an ongoing discussion with the disciples. Luke records it twice, but I guarantee that this happened more than twice. They're thinking when Jesus becomes the king, okay, eventually Jesus, he's told us he's the king. They don't know what that looks like exactly. They have this weird kind of warped view of that. And they're thinking, boy, when he becomes the king, who's going to be the chief of staff? Right? You know, the president like, has the chief of staff who is basically the person who runs a country. <laughs> One of the most important positions in our country is the president's chief of staff. Who's going to do it? Who's going to be the number two guy? Now, this is why, sidebar, I think things like communion are important, right? Because we're so good at forgetting, aren't we? Forgetting what Jesus has done for us. Thinking our sin nature likes to make us think that we're, is, sorry, our sin nature is stronger within us than we think it is. We don't give our sin nature enough credit. And what that sin does is it takes our gaze, it takes our view, and it points it away from God and in on ourselves. And when that happens, this is what we do. This is what we act like. And so when I see the disciples here, I don't go, wow, I would be so much better. Right? Isn't that easy to read this and go, I wouldn't be arguing about who's the greatest? Let's be honest, if I was there, I would be trying to win this argument, and then I would have won it, right? <laughs> That's how this would have gone. But look at the patience of Jesus. Look what he does, right? At some point, you think Jesus is just going to be like, you know what, enough with these 12. 
fire from heaven. <laughs> right? No, this is not what he does. He takes a big sigh. That's not in the text. It's, it's implied, though. He goes, <sighs> verse 25, the kings of the Gentiles, he says to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called to be benefactors. So he just starts at the beginning. All right, guys, we've done this before. Let's do it again. Let's teach you the same stuff again that we've already done. So he talks about the way that, remember in Scripture, we talk a lot about this, that the Bible portrays sort of two systems in the world, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Babylon. And the kingdom of Babylon is broken and messed up and it oppresses people. And it shows up in all sorts of real world kingdoms. And he says, look, this is how authority in Babylon has always worked, with kings and rulers, clients and patrons, in family structures for most of human history, in the military, in business. Oh, Stephen's not even here. I was going to say in Starfleet, right? This is how authority structures work. Is It's top down. And that's just how we think. That's how we think about authority. Do you know how hard it is to retrain yourself to do something? It's like a habit. There are so many things that you think and do you know, without even thinking about it because they're so like ingrained within you. And changing those things is really hard. I remember a while ago, I read this book like years ago called The Power of Habit. And he talked about how the brain works and stuff. And let's be real, I understood some of it. And what he said in the book though was the part of your brain, there's a part of your brain that's like kind of conscious and rational and thinks, and that's not the part of your brain that controls everything. <laughs> you have this other part of your brain that's like habits. And getting this part of your brain to talk to that part of your brain is very hard. And so like, let me give you an example. Speaking of how I got good at basketball, speaking of being good at basketball, uh, here's an illustration from that. So when I was in sixth grade, this is, how I, this is why I got good at basketball. Again, it was pride. I don't even like basketball. But all the kids were trying out for the basketball team when I was in sixth grade. They had one team for the whole middle school, right? Uh, and so I went and I tried out. And they took every kid that tried out except for me. You know what else? They didn't even fill the spots either. They, like, had more spots. They could have taken me and just let me sit there. It wouldn't have hurt anybody's feelings. Okay? So little, I was at that point shorter than Melissa is now, right? I was, like, four foot ten and a nothing, right? I was a little tiny kid trying to play basketball. And so our school was kind of big over on the other side of town. We had, two, we had a gym complex with two gyms. There was one upstairs and one downstairs. And what would happen is the junior high team would practice upstairs just as the high school team was finishing practice. And the high school team would come downstairs and practice. And so I was like, I'm going to be the best player in the whole world because they didn't take me just for spite. And I was angry. And so every day while they were practicing upstairs, I would go practice downstairs, even though I didn't know what I was doing. I, was just, I got to learn how to shoot and stuff. So I'm on one half of the court, and there were these two kids. I don't remember the second one's name, but one of them was Eddie Harris. And these are the guys whose dad was like Serena Williams' dad, you know, with, but with basketball, like really hard, really good coach. And so they, those two would come down with their dad after the high school practice and practice for another three hours every day. And that's why they both ended up playing at USF. And like, they were pretty good. And so I would be on the other side shooting. And one day, Eddie's dad came over to me, and he was like, hey, you know you're doing everything wrong, right? And I was like, no, I have no idea what I'm doing, right? And so he taught me something about free throws, right? And this is what he taught me. When you're shooting, you've got to create a line with your body. It starts with your toe. You've got to run a straight line up here, and your elbow makes a straight line. And this is why Clay Thompson has the most beautiful shot in the world, because he does this exactly. You've got to make this straight line, and you've got to tuck your elbow. 
Now, if you've ever picked up a basketball and not thought about it, this is what you do. You put your elbow out. And everybody that puts their elbow out, when you shoot it, it pushes the ball sideways. But if you tuck your elbow in, you always throw it at least at the rim, right? Okay, so that's, a, that's an ingrained thing, though. Everybody that picks up a basketball has to go like this. So you know what I did? For a year, I took tens of thousands of free throws standing there. And every time I did it, I said to myself, tuck your elbow. And I went, and then I took a free throw. And then I picked up a ball, and I said, tuck your elbow. I tuck my elbow, and I shot it. And eventually, it retrained myself. And that's how I got good at basketball. But that's really hard to do. It took tens of thousands of shots to retrain my body to do something that it normally doesn't do. And this happens in all sorts of stuff, right? Like, you know, I have a rib injury from getting hit by a Jeep Grand Cherokee, and I can't turn to the right. And you know what I always do? i got to buckle my seatbelt. Oh, I still haven't learned that one, right? My body doesn't know. Um, or another one I wrote down was uh, in my van. If you guys have borrowed my van and my Blazer, a lot of you guys have borrowed both of those cars. Um, the van has this emergency brake, you know, okay? And the Blazer, it's a button. And every time I get in a Blazer, I go like this. <laughs> and I kick nothing. And then Melissa laughs at me, and I go, I know, shut up. <laughs> I do it all the time because it's like ingrained in me. Now, those are small examples of like how it's hard to change something like that. There's big examples too, right? Like you just grow up thinking things and changing your mind on those things is really hard. The giants are good. The Dodgers are evil. That's just what we all believe and everybody, you know, um, <laughs> or, but more serious things, right? Like there's a lot of people that just grow up in political families and that's what they believe because that's what they, you know, that's what their parents believe or, I mean, this is how, like, a lot of racism happens, is you see this, like, parents kind of ingraining this in their kids, and the kids just grow up thinking that this is how the world works. And sometimes with, like, take racism, for example, it takes, like, a big life-changing sort of event or something big happening to break you out of that mold. Um, this is what that movie, The Green Book, was all about, where the white driver had to drive the black uh, piano player around the South in the 60s, and he got to experience the racism that the black guy experienced, you know. And, but it took that big thing for him at the end of the movie to, like, invite that guy over for dinner. You know, and that's all it was. Because he grew up in this world, and that's what he thought. The point of all this is power structures. How does power work? How does authority work? This is how it works. We just, we live in the, you know, it's like the don't ask, um, what is it, don't ask a fish what's water? They don't even know. It's just everywhere, right? This is power structures in our world. It's everywhere. If you have a job, there's an authority structure. There's a CEO, and then the guys below him, the vice presidents or whatever, and then the middle guys, and then, you know, that's how that works. At a school, how does it work? There's the principal, there's the, you know, the vice principals, there's the, you know, the teachers, whatever. That's how authority works. Everywhere we go, we see this, the military, all over. We see this authority structure. And so the point, why did the disciples then debate who would be the greatest? Why are they sitting there debating who would be at the top of the pyramid? Because that's the power structure that they, every, you, they see everywhere. That's how they thought the world worked. And they didn't even realize that that's what they were doing, that they were, they were living out this sort of mold of Babylon. But Jesus says, I don't want it to be like that. We need one of these big, drastic, life-changing kind of moments. So he says, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. 
So the kingdom of God is not the same power structure, does not use the same power structures that the kingdom of Babylon uses. Luke has spent this entire gospel explaining this to us. This is one of the reasons I chose the book of Luke as opposed to some of the other gospels as we were reading. Right? Like I said, the pyramid in Babylon is there's somebody at the top and everybody else is at the bottom. But in the kingdom of God, the pyramid is inverted. Right? You're not trying to push your way to the top so that everybody else will prop you up. You're trying to push your way to the bottom so that you'll be the one serving and you'll be the one holding everybody else up. And so that's why Jesus says, let the, let the greatest become, uh, sorry, what does he say? Let the greatest among you become the youngest. So that doesn't make sense in our culture because being old doesn't mean you're great, right? Kind of, but this is, again, a culture where they actually respected their elders. And so this is what he says, let the greatest become the youngest. Now, remember, we've talked a lot about patriarchal culture where the dad, we talked about this in Luke 15 with the prodigal son, right? The dad is like, you know, he's the patriarch of the family. It's also what we call a, a primogeniture, I think is how you say that, culture, where the older brother was the most important one in the family and everything would pass to the older brother. Um, but it's interesting, as you read the Old Testament, this is not a new idea that Jesus is just coming up with. As you read the Old Testament and you understand this primogeniture culture, all of a sudden some really weird things start to happen. Who was older, Cain or Abel? Cain. Who got the blessing? Abel. Who was older, Ishmael or Isaac? Ishmael. Who got the blessing? Isaac. Same thing. His kids, Jacob and Esau. Esau's the older one. He's the manly man. He's the one. Who got the blessing? Jacob. Joseph wasn't the oldest. Moses and Aaron. Aaron was the oldest, not Moses. And then there's even a whole chapter where, fast-forwarding a bunch with David, where Samuel is supposed to pick the king, and he shows up. And he looks at all the older brothers, and God's like, it's not that guy, it's not that guy. And he's like, man, who is it? Do you have any other sons to Jesse? And he's like, I don't know, the, the stupid idiot kid out there watching the sheep. Can't be him, though. Don't worry about that. And that's the one. That's the guy. So throughout the Old Testament, we see this pattern. Like, it's almost like the Old Testament authors are beating us over the head with it. The pages are screaming this truth. God is saying to his people, the way that I do power and authority is not the way that you guys do power and authority. And here's 500,000 examples of how I've worked in history to work this out. Because leaders in the kingdom, what they do is they serve, right? Let the leader be the one who serves. Kingdom leadership is not about bossing people around so that I, the pastor, can get what I want. Kingdom leadership is about serving and leading people to what's best for them in faith, with the things of faith. And power in the kingdom is not about control and power. It's about weakness and humility. It's about the other person, not yourself. So like, for instance, this is my illustration here. I said we would talk about St. Frank. Let's take a job, right? So Kevin, my buddy Kevin, he started a coffee shop. It was called St. Frank. Now, when you run a business, the normal way to run the business is you hire a bunch of people, you get them to do whatever you say, and in America anyway, you squeeze as much out of them for as little as it'll cost you. That's the idea, right? And you burn people out, and then they leave. And you just get another one. People are replaceable. A lot of people can make coffee, right? And that's the way we do it. And then the other thing that happens is we, there are people in Central America and in Africa, and they grow coffee. And I don't care about them. 
and I'm going to try to get as much coffee from that person for as little as possible, and I'm going to use all of my leverage to make sure I barely have to pay for this coffee so that, in the end, I can sell coffee at a decent price and then keep a lot of the profit. That's the power structure according to our world. Kevin is a believer, and St. Frank is not a Christian coffee shop. You don't go in and there's Bible verses on the coffee, right? Coffee mugs, and um, there's a picture of, um, you know, Jesus holding a lamb or whatever, like white Jesus with his blue eyes holding a lamb over the door, right? It's not that kind of coffee shop, but it's a kingdom coffee shop. So what Kevin did was he thought, hmm, what if we treated people like human beings? And what if we paid them enough to live and gave them health insurance, I think? I don't know all the details, right? They have health insurance and stuff? Yeah. And then what if we found out who was growing the coffee? And uh, Kevin flies down and he hangs out with these coffee farmers. And he says, what do you guys need? Are you getting paid enough? You know? And so like the first St. Frank farmer, I think, is a, was a church planter. who was like a really part-time church planter. And he grew coffee with his family. And Kevin, like, knows him and his brother. I think that's where the brothers thing comes from. Don't quote me on that. But the point is, Kevin took this Jesus power structure and he applied it to his business. And you know what? People noticed. The coffee's dope, so that's why we use it here, right? If his coffee sucked, I would still get something better. Let's be honest. Um, For our church. (laughs) Uh, but the other day, Melissa and I, we were at the park, and we were talking to this mom, and Heaven and this little girl were playing. This was on Heaven's birthday. We were at that uh, park on the tunnel, right? It's pretty great. And we're there, and this lady was talking, oh, yeah, and I live right here. I was like, oh, you live right next to St. Frank. And she's like, oh, we love St. Frank. So we started talking, and I was like, oh, yeah, that's my friend, you know, and the first day St. Frank did demo, I went out and did demo with them, and I used to sit out there, you know. It's a great coffee shop. I love Kevin. And she goes, you know what? Can you tell your buddy something? I was like, sure. She goes, they have the nicest people that work there. And then we had a whole conversation about how every coffee shop that has really great coffee, what they have is mean hipsters. So they have hipsters that you walk up to, and you're not hipster enough to go to this coffee shop. And so they get, fine, whatever, you know. St. Frank has a bunch of hipsters, and they're the nicest hipsters in the whole world. And so this is what happened. Kevin took these kingdom principles, and he applied it to this coffee shop. And then what ended up happening was that attitude spread. And he made an impact on the people that work there, and now he's making an impact on the people who get coffee there. She noticed, hey, these people are nice, right? And so where does Kevin get this attitude? Why does Kevin act like this? Kevin and Lauren, they run this coffee shop. Where do they get it from? They get it from their king, right? This is what Jesus says, for who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? It's not the one who reclines at the table, but I am among you as the one who serves. So he uses this illustration, who's greater, the one who's getting served or the one who's serving? Normally, it's the one who's getting served. That's the one that's greater. But Jesus goes, look, guys, you all know I'm better than you, right? I'm Jesus. Are you Jesus? No. Yeah, I didn't think so, Peter. That's what he said. I'm paraphrasing, right? So I'm greater than you, but what just happened? I just washed your feet. Again, I'm the one that's a servant. In the book of Mark, Jesus says this, For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. He's the ultimate servant. Um, He's the ultimate servant. And so, Jesus, I love this, because these guys are arguing about which one's the greatest. What does Jesus do? All right, guys, let's back to square one. Let's just talk about this again. And he explains the whole thing again. He's not mean about it. 
He understands the fallen and sinful nature. And I love this too, though. He's also encouraging. Look what he says. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You guys stayed with me in my trials. One of the other Gospels talks about how basically everybody left Jesus, right? When they started to realize he wasn't the king that, you know, he lost a ton of disciples. He went from mega church to a tiny little church with 12 guys, right? Well, I mean, more than that, but you know. And as we read the Gospels, it almost, we kind of get this picture that the disciples are just completely clueless and that the death of Jesus came out of nowhere, Right? But that's not really the picture the gospel writers paint. There's been a lot of opposition to Jesus and his ministry. And the disciples, through the opposition, the, the most important, famous, powerful people in, the, in their like, religious world are opposing Jesus every day in the temple. And the disciples have stuck with Jesus. And in a second, we realize that they're starting to get the hint that, they, that Jesus is going to die. We'll see that in a minute. And they stick with him anyway. And he says, because of who you guys are and because you've been chosen and you're the 12, well, I mean, not Judas, but, you know, you guys, you will sit on these thrones in eternity. So it's a tie back to verse 24. They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. And Jesus goes, look, you guys are going to be the greatest, but not in the way that you think, not in this life and in the power structures of this world. And these guys sitting at this table, they're going to have a special place in eternity, a special place in the kingdom of God. But even more important than that, they're going to sit at the table with God. That's the big, you know, they're going to sit and eat and drink. We talked about that last week, how important the picture of eating and drinking and meals and fellowship is. They get fellowship. They're going to go to the king's table, right? They're going to be there at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's the greatest honor. But before we get there, there's a long road ahead of suffering and pain and failure and sin. So verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. So whenever God uses double names like this, you know something's about, something's up. Abraham, Abraham, you know. Yeah, Melissa does this too. She goes, John, John. You know, uh, when I put the ice cream in the fridge instead of the freezer. Oh, John, John. Right. <laughs> Simon, 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 right. But then what's interesting, he goes, Simon, Simon. And then he goes, you all. So y'all, right? There's no y'all in the, we don't really do that. I guess you guys do in the South or whatever, but this is plural. The word you is plural. So Simon, Simon, behold, Satan is demanded to sift you, plural, uh, to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Both of those are plural. So it's interesting. He goes, Simon, and then he's talking to all the disciples. And what he says here is it's kind of like in Job. Do you remember the beginning of Job where Job and, sorry, God and um, the devil are talking? He's like, I bet I can mess with Job. And God's like, okay, go for it. That's kind of what's going on here. The devil is asking can I mess with Peter? Free papers, if you want those later. Um, he goes, uh, he wants to sift you like wheat. Now, what that was is, if you don't know anything about, okay, I'm going to be honest, I don't either. I Googled this, right? So what they do is they put wheat in this thing, and they shake it up real hard so that the chaff kind of flies away. The idea is you, you shake it really hard. That's what he's saying. Simon, Satan is asking to, and all the disciples to shake you guys up. But... I've prayed for you that your faith might not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Right? I love this. It's, now he goes back to singular. So Simon, Simon, he's talking to Simon. Satan's asking to have all of you guys. But Simon specifically, 
I've prayed for you specifically that your faith wouldn't fail. And when you have turned, not if, Jesus is very confident, when you have turned back, so he's telling Peter, you're going to fail, but you're going to come back. And in that, you're going to be able to lead the people and you're going to strengthen your brothers with that. But what do you think Peter said? Oh man, that's a bummer. No, no, Peter, he's me. He's confident, mm, right? He's an arrogant punk. Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Okay, right? He's so sure of himself. Now, there's two types of people who are going to read this verse. The first type is like me, who tend to be, uh, you know, struggle with pride and arrogance, and we're good at basketball, so we think we're amazing, right? And people like me, we read this, and we identify with Peter. I know exactly what he's thinking. He's full of himself, and he thinks he can do anything. The second type of person reads this, but has like low self-esteem, a low view of themselves. And they don't identify with this attitude. And they say, well, I would never say that because I know I would let Jesus down. Uh, so I would never make that promise. But at the core, both of those ends of the spectrum are the same thing. It's me, me, me. What do I do for Jesus? How, how I'm the center. Am I good enough for Jesus, right? It's two sides of the same coin. And so Peter, he makes this very firm declaration I'm ready to go to you both to prison and to death. Here's the thing. When Peter said this, though, he actually meant it. Because you know what happens? We'll read this uh, in a bunch of weeks, but we'll get in our next Luke sermon. They arrest Jesus. What does Peter do? Who knows? Takes out a sword and starts swinging, right? Now, at a giant crowd of soldiers, and they have, what, two swords between the 12 disciples, Peter was ready to go to death. And then Jesus stops him, and then his whole world falls apart. And we'll get into some of that later on, right? All right, keep going. Verse 34, but Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. So, Peter, you're so confident. That confidence is not even going to last 12 hours at this point because they're already getting close to the middle of the night. Um, I think, yeah, you'll deny me three times. Lying once, you can chalk that up to being scared. Lying twice, I don't know, kind of a habit, I guess. Three times, this is deep. This is serious business to deny that you know somebody three times. Uh, Peter's confidence, right? It has no foundation. All right, let's keep going. We're going to fly through some of these here. And he said to them, when I sent you out without a money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said, nothing. So if you remember back in chapter 10, he sent the disciples out on this mission. And they had not to take a bunch of stuff and they were taken care of. In verse 36, so he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. So Jesus, this is kind of a confusing verse. What he's saying is, what's going to happen next in your lives, the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus is going to inaugurate a whole new phase of ministry for you guys, where you're going to really have to change your attitudes and start taking care of yourselves, and you know, you're going to have to go out. You're going to travel to Antioch and to Philippi. You're going to be all over, you know, go to Rome. Thomas goes to India. Um, you know, they go to Africa. Like, they, they have to go out. And so, he's telling them, you guys, get ready for this big mission that's coming. Now, the tricky part here is, what does he mean by cells take some swords? Now, most commentaries that I read in prepping for this sermon, I swear, spent half of the ink on this, what did he mean by swords? Um, the big question is, did he mean this literally? Did he mean for the disciples to go out and arm themselves uh, with deadly weapons, and then head out in the world as missionaries? Uh, I don't think so. 
Let me tell you why. First, we have to remember what Jesus has already taught his disciples about loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. So take a sword with you on the mission field doesn't really add up. Second, Peter does use a sword, like we said, and he cuts off Malchus's ear. And what does Jesus say to him? Dude, cut it out, and then we'll read it. He puts the guy's ear back on or whatever, right? He heals the guy. So uh, what is Jesus talking about then? Again, in the context, what he's telling them is, guys, your training is almost over. You're moving from being disciples who are learners to apostles who take the message out. That's what that means, like messenger, the one who's sent out. You're, you're, you're going out, and so you need to be ready. You need to be, you need to be tough. You need to be ready because it's going to be hard. Um, a modern example is, I, this, I actually had this happen. I was sitting in a church planting seminar when I was just thinking about church planting, and this guy was talking, the seminar was about basically like trying to talk people out of it and talking about how hard it was. And in that seminar talking about how hard church planting was, the guy said, so church planting is not for the faint-hearted. So if you're going to get out there and you're going to plant a church, you need to put your cup on. That was what he said. Now, did he mean actually go out there like in baseball practice back in the day and, you know, put on a cup and do the whole... No, that's not what he's talking about. What he's talking about is you need to be ready to go out there. That's what Jesus is saying. So everything's about to change and become difficult. Why? For I tell you, the scriptures must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered among the transgressors, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. So he quotes from Isaiah 53. And Luke, again, spends a lot of time painting this picture that Jesus in the death and resurrection, right, especially the death and the torture and all that, he's not losing control. He's in complete and perfect control of what's happening. And it, it, to the point where he even predicted this in Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. You know, that whole, like that chapter is about Jesus. And here, the night that it's happening, Jesus says, that stuff is about me. And if you remember back at the beginning of Luke, we talked about that verse where it says, Jesus grew. I don't remember exactly what it says, like in wisdom and knowledge. He learned the Bible. And what this means is that there was a point when Jesus was a boy, and he was learning the Bible in his humanity. And he didn't know everything. He wasn't born knowing everything. And he was reading Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgression, bruised for our iniquities. Right? And it, it describes the brutal death of the suffering servant. And the Spirit said to Jesus, that's you. That's going to be you. And Jesus had to struggle with that. That's heavy, right? And so Jesus here is saying he's pouring out his heart to the disciples. And of course, what do the disciples always do in moments like this? They go, oh, look, here, we have two swords. <laughs> Jesus goes, again, the sigh is not in the Bible, but it's, it's implied. He goes, it's enough. Now, what does he mean by it's enough? Not that's enough swords. Two will be enough swords. Two is not enough swords, right? What he means is enough of this. I'm done talking about this now, right? Enough of this talk. And then he keeps going. And he came and he went out, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. So they walk from Jerusalem down, there's a the valley called the Kidron Valley, and then it goes up to the Mount of Olives. And the Garden of Gethsemane is on the, the side of the Mount of Olives. And while they're walking, they stop a whole bunch, and they walk through some vineyards, and Jesus does a whole bunch of teaching. That's John chapter 13 through 18. And none of that is in Luke. There's a whole bunch of stuff if you want to go read it. He gives them the new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. The Holy Spirit's going to come when I leave. Um, I, like standing among the vineyards there in the valley, he goes, I am the vine, you, you turkeys are the branches. Again, I'm paraphrasing. The world's going to hate you like it hates me. 
all that stuff. I've overcome the world. That's all there uh, in, in the walk. So Luke just skips over it with one quick verse, and then verse 40. So when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, what does he mean by this? Well, again, the Greek is tricky. With Greek verbs, you can say a lot. So one of the things you can do with verb tenses in Greek is to say, is this thing possible? Is it a sure thing? Is it a one-time thing? Is it an ongoing thing? And this Greek verb, pray that you may not enter temptation, means it's not a one-time command. It's like you guys should always be praying to not enter temptation. So a less literal but more descriptive translation of this would be something like, you guys should always be praying because prayer is what keeps you from the temptation to be Babylon people, right? That's the context of all he's talking about. In verse 41, so then he withdrew about a stone's throw. I wonder who throws the stone. I can throw a stone pretty far, so I don't know. But a stone's throw, and he knelt down and he prayed. So Jesus goes off by himself, but he's close enough that they could hear him. But here's the thing. The disciples a couple of different times, fall asleep. And Jesus comes back and says, hey guys, wake up in the other gospels. And he goes back. So who wrote the whole prayer down? In John 17, we have what's called the high priestly prayer. He records the entire prayer. And it's this beautiful thing. He prays for us and unity and all this stuff. Well, in Mark, there's this verse. This is the greatest verse in the Bible that nobody has tattooed. A young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him during the arrest. They grabbed him, the kid, and he left the linen cloth and he ran away naked. That's a weird verse, isn't it? You ever thought about it? You ever seen this verse? You ever noticed this? Just in the middle of the arrest story, this kid is following them, and he gets, they take his clothes off, he runs home naked, stark naked like Bar Simpson and the Simpsons, right? So that was probably, church tradition says this was Mark, John Mark. He was a young kid. His mom's house was the upper room. He was following the disciples at a distance. He stayed awake, and he remembered the whole prayer, and he told John, and you know. All right, so this is the prayer, though. Jesus says this. He's, he's in the garden. He's struggling. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. That's crazy. Jesus sits in the garden the night of his arrest, the night before the crucifixion. And he says, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Jesus was aware of the suffering that he was about to face. And he was afraid. He was afraid of the flogging, the beatings, the crucifixion. But he was also afraid of being the sacrificial lamb. Facing the wrath of God was infinitely worse than the pain of crucifixion. So what he says is, if there's another option, let's go with that. That's what he tells the Father. But he says this, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He models the Lord's Prayer. You know the Lord's Prayer? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is what he taught his disciples. And in his moment of pain and anguish, this is what he leans on. Not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. Okay, he needed encouragement while he sat here. This was hard. Luke is being very clear that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus struggled. He struggled uh, with this decision to follow through and to face the wrath of God to the point where the angels had to show up and encourage him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. One commentator said this, and I've been thinking about this all week. Imagine what it takes to make God agonize. Right? Jesus is the God-man. He's, per- he's man, but he's also God. The answer is the weight of sin. Now, why is Jesus here so anxious? Now, when you're anxious about something coming up, 
There's two ways, there's two reasons to be anxious. One, because you don't know what's about to happen. You've never experienced it, and you build it up in your head. So you're about to go in for some sort of a medical procedure that you know is going to hurt or something like that, right? Uh, and you know it's going to hurt, but you don't know how bad, and so you get all worked up. The second reason is because you've already had this done, and you know how bad it sucks. And so then you sit in the waiting room, knowing that you're about to walk into that room, and I don't know if you've ever had painful medical procedures. Am I the only one? They've, I had this one shot once they had to, before they did surgery on my wrist. It's a long story. But the guy, he had to put this needle in my arm and then pull it out. It hurt so bad because he had to push it through a cluster of nerves and kind of wiggle the needle through the nerves, and it felt like my arm was on fire. I had to do that twice. The second time I sat in that waiting room, I was more scared than the first time because I knew what it felt like. That's what Jesus, he's not been through this, but with his divine knowledge and everything, he knows what's about to happen, and it's terrifying. And so the more agony, though, that he was in, the more he prayed, right? And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And sweat became, his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, I've heard some people kind of say that Jesus sweated blood. That's how I always read this growing up, and it's what I always thought. And then when I was studying it in the last few weeks, something I realized something. Do you see what it actually says? His sweat became like great drops of blood. It doesn't say his sweat became blood. So there is a condition where you get really stressed out and you sweat blood. That happens. That's not a made-up thing. But that's not what Luke says. Luke says he's sweating so hard, it's like dripping, like when, I don't know if you've ever cut yourself a lot, and then blood goes everywhere, <laughs> like... Okay, I go. I'm not a very careful person in life in general. Um, anyway, <laughs> so this is what's happening. He's struggling and he's sweating, and he rose from prayer. He came to the disciples and he found them sleeping from sorrow. That's important. And he said to them, "Why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation." So they're sleeping from sorrow. They don't have the perspective that Jesus has, but they know something's up, and they're starting to get. He's talking about one of you is going to betray me. I'm going to be crucified. They're going to turn me over. They're starting to put the pieces together. And so they fall asleep from sorrow. You ever been just so sad? You're like, I can't be awake anymore, right? Like, and you just sleep for days. That's kind of what this is. So he tells them, rise and pray that you may not enter temptation. So again, this passage is bracketed with that command to pray. And then just then, Judas shows up, and that's where we'll pick up in a few weeks. Okay, so let's take this text then. It opens up with this. Which one of us is the greatest? No, I'm going to be the greatest. No, it's going to be me. And Jesus then, what does he do? He teaches them about Babylon's version of greatness and the kingdom's version of greatness. But even more than just teaching them, what he does is he lives it out and he models it. Jesus is the ultimate example of this kingdom life, this kingdom living, the servant life, the life of love. And we see this specifically with his struggle and his willingness to die. This was Jesus moving his way all the way to the bottom of the pyramid, to serve everybody else, to serve all of his people. And it wasn't easy. He really struggled. Do you remember back in chapter 4? I think it was chapter 4. We read the story of the temptation. And in the story of the temptation, we asked this question. Could Jesus have really sinned? Right? Was Jesus really tempted like we are? And here's the answer I gave you, and I stole it from a book called The Man Christ Jesus, where he talks about this guy, Bruce Ware. He says, Jesus was fully a man. And <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> in obedience, in his obedience, he wasn't using his divinity to obey God. He was using his humanity, even though the divinity was sitting right there. And what, he sa- what I said was, it's like an al- a swimmer from Alcatraz, 
you know, the, they do the race. Um, Melissa's cousin does it every year a couple times, I think. Um, now, the way the race works is there's a boat right next to you the whole time. So is there any chance that Melissa's cousin Ashley is going to drown on the swim from Alcatraz? No, there's a boat right next to her. But when she swims the thing and she comes up on the shore, do we all go, there was a boat there the whole time? No, we go, whoa, she just swam from Alcatraz. This is impressive. Even though the boat was there the whole time. That's what Jesus did. Fully man, but he, he endured the temptation through his own power, his own uh, empowered by the Holy Spirit, but in his human nature. And so in his humanity, he really did struggle. And so if we jump that now to Jesus in Gethsemane, that same idea, that's what we can say is the man Christ Jesus sat in the Garden of Eden, I'm sorry, in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was, it was tough. And he had to power through to obedience. And we don't really understand it, but the weight of sin that he was facing, becoming sin for us, and facing that, becoming that sacrifice was completely unfathomable. I'm going to read to you from Corinthians. This is how we're going to end. From Corinthians. I'm sorry, from he, not Corinthians, uh, from Hebrews. For every high priest is chosen from among men, uh, is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer up gifts and sacrifices. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Do you see that? The, oh, the original high priests in the temple system... They were sinners. But because of this, he's obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. So every year, the high priest has to go. He has to offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people, but also on behalf of himself, because he's a fallen and broken sinner. And no one takes this honor for himself, but when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but he was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. All right, so just like God picked the high priests and, and anointed them to be the high priests, he picked Jesus and anointed him to be the sacrifice. And then verse 7, I'm going to skip that Melchizedek thing. And then verse 7, in the days of his flesh, this is important, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with what? With loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. That phrase is important. That tells us what was happening in Gethsemane. Loud cries and tears. Jesus was wailing and filled with emotion. And he was crying and he was begging the Father, I don't want to do this. Don't make me, you know, if there's any other way that we could do this, let's do it. And, at, you know, here's the thing too. It says he was praying to the one who could save him from death. That's true. Matthew says this during the arrest. Jesus says, don't you think I could appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Okay, so there's a story in 2 Kings 19 where one angel kills 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. One angel. Now, a legion of angels is 5,000. I did the math. 12 legions, that's 60,000. If 60,000 angels could kill each kill 185,000 people, we're talking about 11 billion soldiers. That's way more people than arrested Jesus, just by a few. The point is, Jesus is making this over the top. I could stop this if I wanted to, but I don't want to. Why not? The very next verse in Matthew, how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? You see, that's not the plan. The plan was for the scriptures to be fulfilled and for Jesus to head to the cross. 
And so he prays, not my will, but yours be done. Not this power structure where I get what's easy for me and worse for you, but the upside down power structure where I get what's worse for me, but better for you. He's the pinnacle of the kingdom of God. He's the ultimate example. He didn't do what was best for him. He did what was best for me and for you. And so when we, what we do is we take in that kingdom greatness. We let sort of the life of Christ flood into our lives, and it changes how we see the world. The more we show up to sermons and read our Bibles and look at the way that this kingdom power structure works, the more we're taking one free throw and saying, tuck your elbow, tuck your elbow, tuck your elbow, tuck your elbow. And then eventually, it sort of becomes who we are. We're the kind of people who take shots and tuck our elbow. We just live in this upside-down kingdom. And so not we lean into that greatness, but not the Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay, I'm the, right, I'm the greatest, everybody should look at me greatest, but the kingdom greatness. So every day you're presented with choices. Are you going to live like kingdom greatness or the world's greatness? Are you going to do, this is what I love about Kevin and St. Frank. He had a big choice and he chose kingdom greatness, right? And we have all these big choices, little choices, medium choices in our lives. And what we have to do is take in the kingdom greatness of Jesus and then have that flow out into the world around us. And then we'll be these kind of kingdom people because we're part of his upside down kingdom. Amen? Let's pray. So, Lord, we, we confess, Lord, that a lot of times we just work in the, the wrong kingdom. You know, we're Babylon people when we shouldn't be. We thank you, Lord, for what we read in this text, for your struggle. We thank you that you, in the Garden of Gethsemane, as you struggled through this, that you prayed, not my will, but yours be done. Lord, that shows us how much you love us, how much you care for us, how much we're the apple of your eye. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to love other people in the same way, to take that life and that that kingdom focus in and then to display it to the world. Help us to love other people when it's hard, the way that you loved us when it was the hardest. We love you so much. Amen.